to the Human Tech Podcast, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hey, Guthrie. And you want to run the introductions today? We have two really special guests today. We have Stephen Anderson. Stephen is a trainer, facilitator, and founder of the Mighty Minds Club. So we're going to definitely have to talk about that. And then Carl Fast. Carl is Director of Information Architecture at Normative Software Innovation. And he is, uh, the company is based in Toronto, but he's actually in Minneapolis. And uh, Stephen's actually talking to us from Plano, Texas. So um, welcome, guys. We are so happy to have you on. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Now, um, Carl and Stephen wrote a book, uh, and we're going to talk about it extensively because I have a lot to say about it. Uh, so <laughs> I do. And it's called Figure It Out, Getting from Information to Understanding. And this is a Rosenfeld Media publication. And this this came out like really recently, right? When did this come out, guys? Uh, just came out a few months ago in uh, May. Yeah. End of May. All right, so I'm, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell everybody listening, you have to go buy this book. I mean, you, and you know, we have book authors on all the time, and uh, it, we always have interesting conversations, and I always like the books, uh, and I always recommend people read them. But this one, I'm going to say, this is not recommended reading. This is like, you have to go read this if you design anything, anything. Uh, if you have anything to do with information and and conveying information, you gotta go, you gotta go read this book. So I'm gonna gush about this book, which I will tell you. Actually, Guthrie would probably agree. Doesn't always happen, right? Doesn't happen that often that I get really excited. But I do have one one thing I'm gonna one bone I'm gonna pick with you, which is the title because it's such an important book i think it needs a stronger title than figure it out i mean that's an interesting title but i wanted to call it like go read this book instantly oh, hold on hold on hold on what you tried that i know i'm and, bad with book titles don't listen to me don't listen you, to me at all so. but anyway it's uh wow the book is really amazing and i have lots of questions and lots of things i want to ask you about i guess uh let's start though by just mentioning with the book that I'll mention it's really well written. It's easy to understand, which it better be since the subtitle is about getting from information understanding. Uh, I was trying to figure out when I was reading it, like which parts Carl wrote versus which parts Stephen wrote. And I don't know if I, you gave hints here and there because you were telling some personal stories, but otherwise. I couldn't really tell. But you have in here like all of my favorite topics, you know? And I, I so you, you've got in here about, you know, pattern recognition. You have in here about, uh, you know, visual and gestalt. And, you know, these are like all the, all the things I love to talk about and we teach about in our classes. And I was really, really fascinated that you kind of opened with embodied cognition because that's one of my favoritest topics and the fact that you put that so early in the book I found really fascinating so can we start there can you guys just 
difference. Can somebody talk? Because I don't know if that everybody listening really knows what embodied cognition is. Some people probably do and some people don't. So could could you talk a little bit about embodied cognition and about why you put it early in the book and why you think it's so important to understand if what you're trying to do is get people to be able to understand the information you're providing them with. Yeah, before, uh, just a brief comment before we unpack that, and then I'll let Carl unpack uh, the embodied cognition uh, bits, but that originally wasn't in the beginning of the book. In fact, we had a structure where we were kind of starting with things that were more familiar, more familiar territory and unfolding or revealing additional information as the book went on. And there was this point about halfway through where we'd say, okay, remember all that stuff we said about the brain in the beginning? We're going to tell you more and kind of contradict ourselves and get, you know, reveal more. And we sent that draft out to early readers and the feedback was, you're just confusing us. <laughs> like, I appreciate the narrative approach and that you're unfolding things and layering, but you just need to come out of the gate with your stance and what you're proposing and then let everything build on that. So it actually went from being like, I don't know, the eighth or ninth chapter and interwoven into others to actually being uh, chapter two in the book. So after we anchor with what the book's about, the introduction, the orientation, we say, great, now here's the foundation for everything that's going to follow. Um, so yeah, Carl, you want to unpack that a bit more? Sure. Um, so anyone who works in design, user experience, maybe just more, you think of yourself as a graphic designer, product design, any sort of aspect of design, you were trained or you operate in a world in which we have a certain idea of what thinking is, what the mind is and how that all works. And that is the story that has been told by cognitive science going back over the last 50, 60 years, starting in the late 1950s and early 60s. And the basic idea, the basic model that we have all been taught here and what the science has moved towards is this notion that there is things in the world, there is information in the world. We perceive that information That information then gets converted into electrical uh, impulses, which go into the brain. The brain does a bunch of work. And that's where cognition happens, right? What the brain does is that's, that's the thinking part. And so perception is viewed as sort of this input. The brain is all powerful. And it does this thing we call mental computation. And then from there, we have action as a result of that. Um, And this really is the dominant view that we have that emerges through the 60s and 70s and becomes basically the the way that we all think about about the mind and the brain um, today. And this is deep in the bones of every textbook, every um, everything you ever learn or taught pretty much about um, how the mind works. And the science there is really good. Um, Steven Pinker in the late 90s wrote a great book called How the Mind Works, which articulates this view in great detail. And it's called now the information, it was called information processing theory, and now it's generally called the computational theory of mind. But in the late 80s and early 90s, and you can date this at different points, people began to say, wait a second, like, there's some other things that are going on here that we're not really accounting for. So you would have these cognitive models that people would build, right? Uh, And so scientists would build these models, and they would not have things like feet. Like your feet would just not even be part of the model. Your hands would be, say, a manual motor, motor processor, or your eyes would be an ocular motor processor, and they would be, you know, visual input systems. And they would describe it in these very clinical and detached terms. Um, and everything was built around this idea of input, mental computation, and then output. But there were studies that were sort of pushing people in different directions and saying, well, there's other 
aspects and things that are going on. And some of this research goes back a long, long ways. So the idea of embodiment is to say, we are physical creatures. We evolve in a three-dimensional world. We move around the world. We have hands. We gesture with our hands. We manipulate things. We speak. We don't just passively sit there and perceive information, think about it, and then make decisions. We routinely and commonly interact with the world around us. And what we try to also point out is that we use information in our world as a resource. And so part of the reason, to get back to your opening comment about the title, part of the reason we call it Figure It Out is because understanding information really is a process of working through and with the things that we have in the world. Now embodiment is like a big complicated kind of word and we're, there's a lot of different disciplines or areas of study. People talk about distributed cognition, situated action. They will talk about something called dynamical systems theory or activity theory. We generally use the way, word embodiment to mean this big picture idea that we cannot really grapple with how the mind works, how we think, reason, plan, and understand and make sense of the world unless we also account for our bodies and how our bodies interact with and use the information and materials and resources in the world around us. Yeah, yeah, it's a great description. And um, uh, so have you gotten any feedback since moving it to the beginning? Has anyone commented on on that? Oh, night and day difference. Like it was, uh, I think before we had a lot of really good thoughts loosely threaded, but I think with, again, that was sent to early readers. There are about eight or nine readers we sent it to. And yeah. um, after we restructured, which uh, itself was an interesting understanding problem, after we <laughs> restructured, it was so much clearer and things fell into place. And the, the structure you see today, um, uh, yeah, it didn't come naturally. It was a lot of hard work over yeah. many years and many re- rewrites and um, mostly at the structural level, but uh, no, yeah, moving that chapter to the beginning definitely cleared a lot of things, and like I said, set the foundation for everything that followed. And speaking of everything that followed, for those who have not read the book, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, you, kind of, you, I just you jump jumped, right in. You yeah, we've all off. read the book, so wow. let's, yeah, yeah, sorry, you, sorry, yeah, I got started. excited. You were, you were slaloming down I'm the sorry. mountain. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, Guthrie. Uh, so can you guys give the little thirty-second spiel? Of, of what the book is about and oh really Guthrie no I'm kidding <laughs> yeah go ahead go ahead we'll back up yeah so the book ends you know there's the opening two chapters so the what is it the problem that we need to address and the embodied parts so that's the opening book and then there's the closing book end uh, but in between uh, how we talk about working with information as a resource uh, we kind of divvy up into four uh, parts uh, first part is really just starting with this idea that what we think of as understanding is activating prior associations. So associations being part one. Uh, part two addresses what happens when we bring ideas into the world and give them form, whether that's on a screen or building a physical model or what, whatever it may be. Uh, part three then is really about, it's not just bringing those ideas into the world and looking at them, but it's also interacting with them. So interacting with things is a way of making sense of the world, making sense of things. And then finally, the fourth chapter, um, and maybe a better way to talk, a fourth part, um, maybe a better way to talk about it instead of four parts is three plus one, because <laughs> the final one is really about the coordination of those prior things, that they never really um, stand alone, even though we've talked about them that way, that it's always a coordination 
of associations, representations, and external representations and interactions. So coordination is the the final part that rounds it out, and then the bookend that brings the book uh, to a close. Yes. <laughs> so one, you know, I do want to mention, I mean, there, you've got, a, um, you've got a lot of, uh, you know, scientific, uh, advanced ideas in here. However, it really is very well written and written in a way that, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I think if you know about, uh, a lot of these different topics, it's it's still great to have them all in one place and you give some great examples and and so it's still a wonderful book but if you don't know about some of these topics um you know it's not overwhelming it's very easy to read and and yeah the examples i think are really important and you guys even have some interesting you know personal personal stories um so i if you if you don't mind there's a story at the very beginning about the uh, diabetes refrigerator chart. Oh yeah. <laughs> Could, would you talk a little bit about that? Cause I thought that was such a great introduction at, as to, you know, I, I mean, uh, uh, I'm not going to say a common issue, but you know, uh, an, a very important issue, not necessarily, you know, the most difficult, uh, uh, situation, right? I mean, it's, it's it's often that that people have health issues and there's you know they need a set of guidelines to follow. But I, I thought it was a great example. So talk a little bit about about that. Yeah, yeah. So my uh, oldest son, when he was uh, four, he was diagnosed with type one diabetes or juvenile diabetes, as it used to be called, and. Um, yeah, we have fortunately here in in the Dallas area, we have a really great hospital. It's uh, one of the best in the the nation for uh, endocrine endocrinology, you know, issues. Uh, and so we went through a three day retraining program where we learned uh, what would be our new normal for managing, uh, you know, his life with diabetes. And you know, it's for anyone who uh, knows of or has type one diabetes, it really is a dramatic life change. So you have to count, you know, the carbs in the food you're about to eat because you have to give yourself a shot to, you know, of the insulin to balance out, you know, the carbs you're ingesting. Um, you have to plan when you're going to eat. There's this whole just complicated, I wouldn't say complex, but very complicated, you know, routines that you have to begin adopting. And, you know, there's a lot of forms and paperwork that the hospital gives you, you know, legal, mostly of a legal nature. But there was one form in particular, which is the thing you're supposed to pin to your refrigerator wall or put on your refrigerator and uh, refer to to help you figure out what to do at what time, you know, because everything's scheduled, measure it out, um, and what proportions and all that. And the form is, um, as you would imagine, is absolutely broken. And my wife, who knows my penchant for making sense of things visually, graphically, uh, after the 30-minute training on this form, right? she looked at me and said, this form is broken. You've got to fix it, Stephen. And so um, in the chapter, opening chapter, I show the before version and the after version. And there's kind of two point or two reasons we include that. Um, one is uh, we needed to open the book with uh, just an example of these everyday understanding problems, because oftentimes we don't see uh, things we are confused by as problems. We just accept it and go on and say, well, that's how things are. So terms of service and legal agreements are meant to be confusing and 
who would, you know, who would imagine a parking street sign could be, you know, clearer to understand, right? That's just the way the world is. And we wanted to challenge that idea and say, no, 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 we don't have to accept these uh, problems of understanding as such. Like these are things that can be fixed. So that was that was the the first reason. The second was wanted to start with, you know, kind of saying this is something anyone can do. You don't have to be a graphic designer or uh, trained in any particular skill to fix a lot of these problems or at least call them out. And so with the chart. It was really, uh, you know, it was some light information design and restructuring of things and saying, okay, there's some columns here. There's time as a, as a, you know, a way of sequencing these things. And, you know, frankly, if you can organize your closet, organize your kitchen pantry, then you could probably redesign this form in the way we did. And I even call out, you know, at the end, I didn't make it, you know, look great. I didn't make the icons consistent or uh, think about the color <laughs> correction, right? I just made it functional. And that's, we wanted to encourage everyone right from the get-go that yes, there are these problems out there and yes, you can uh, be empowered to fix them or at least know how uh, to go about fixing these. Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was a really good, you know, concrete example about, you know, not just the issues with the topic, but some ideas about how to go about solving it. And it, it, it you know, it made it made one very curious about, okay, yeah, yeah, let's sh show me how to do that, you know? Um, so, I, let, all right, now I'm gonna, you know, whether Guthrie likes it or not, I'm gonna just <laughs> go to a totally different place and talk about something you, else. You He's shaking his go. head. That's crazy. <laughs> all right, so you have a, a, an entire section or chapter or series of chapters where you're talking about things actually got through that you know a lot about like anchoring priming um you know the oh, use yeah. of metaphor <laughs> that whole area guthrie's background is behavioral economics so that's kind of these are some of his specialties um and and it one thing that i found interesting and, and because sometimes these types of questions you know things that you do that prime people to react one way or another or anchor them to pay attention to one thing or another. Sometimes those are often used as with the whole idea of behavior change or nudging or, you know, or, you know, we get the question all the time, you know, is this ethical and are you manipulating people? And what I found interesting was you were talking about them in the context of making things easier to understand. And that was actually a little bit different way. I mean, I, I got it, but it was a little different way for, for me to think about them. So would you talk a little bit about some of those topics and how, how some of these things either can make things hard to understand or by adjusting them, it can make information easier to understand? Yeah, and that, that section of, of the entire book, that one chapter where we call out some studies that have been cited in numerous other places, um, I, you know, I've, I've heard feedback from a few people like, oh, yeah, I've seen those studies or I saw that referenced elsewhere. But the reason we included that is the broader section is about associations. And as I read a lot of those, you know, behavioral economic studies and looked at this, I saw it through a different lens of the reason these are working is because it's activating prior associations in the brain. And um, I even call out there were there were more than more than a few studies where, you know, they've had trouble replicating them and and such. And so we called that out in the book and said, hey, you know, like, like take the spirit of these in the in the in the way it's meant, which is uh, 
you know, we think, or we would argue the reason these, these things work, or there's a correlation is because of prior associations being activated. And so there's studies they are kind of shaky, like the, um, oh gosh, I may have one of you retell the story, but you know, the one where they prime people to think about words associated with being, uh, uh, with the elderly. And then they ask people to go get, um, unbeknownst to them, that's, this is still part of the study. They ask them to deliver some papers down the hallway. Yeah. That's like a John, John Barg, isn't it? Um, wasn't that, but that study had some, there was, there's some, I thought issues. there's some questionable <laughs> issues around that. Yeah, and, that, and that's why I brought it up. It was one of the more questionable ones. And there were some that were safe, but we included all those to make the point that, okay, if there is a correlation here and, you know, there's replication issues, right? But if there's a correlation, what would that be? And, you know, it's the idea that we're activating these ideas in, in, um, in our neural pattern recognition thing, the brain, and maybe that would affect then how we walk down the hallway. And that may be, a, a you know, again, issues with replicability, but you look at a constellation of these studies and that that to us was the common denominator of the thread that we saw along the, along these studies as they're activating these prior associations. Mm. And um, I don't know, I don't know if you uh, recall, I, my first book was uh, Seductive Interaction Design, mm -hmm. where I talk about, um, you know, I think we were both part of New Writers, Beachbit uh, Press, this is yeah. 10 years ago. So, back yeah. in the day. <laughs> back in the day. But, um, you know, I, I talked a lot about applying these ideas to create better experiences. And I think the, you know, fast forward a few years later and yeah, I was being hired to help increase, you know, growth or hacking or these other things. And I was like, wait a second, this isn't why I wrote the book. I wrote the book so we can make more human experiences. And in that book, I actually called out um, the word seduction and that, you know, if you go back to the root word, one of the translations is to guide or lead along. And that's, that's the definition of I've always clung to, which is in all areas of life, we do look to others and other structures to guide or lead us along. So if I, you know, pandemic once it is gone right if we want to go out and watch a movie we expect the director to do a good job guiding us along for two hours in that story right or um, a good keynote or a podcast right there's some structure there and so in the context of this book um, it really is about how are we um, how are we you know facilitating that understanding process and I'm very quick to I think a chapter later say okay for all the benefits of these uh, associations that you're activating, whether they're stories or priming or metaphors or what have you, analogies, uh, let's talk about first principles and let's talk about the absence of those things and how far do we go down. Um, and then I think there's a theme that comes out through several chapters, which, which is it's not just one of these models or concepts that you're activating, but the more you activate many of them and you help people see the same thing through many lenses, the more likely we are to see the truth or the reality of what's going on there. So it's, um, yeah, it's definitely not in service of guiding people along to a, a particular conclusion, pre, you know, uh, pre-gone conclusion, but using these things to facilitate our own sense-making process or group sense-making process, as we talk about later in the book. A lot of what we're talking about, I think, in the book, uh, to come back to the uh, embodiment, is, you know, the reason we frame it at the beginning in, in that way is that um, the science around the mind is changing, that's embodiment, but we also have a lot of our technology is changing and right, our technology is becoming more embedded in the world, we have information everywhere and we're getting more and richer in ways of interacting with that. And um, this gives us sort of 
we have to question, I think, some of our old ways of thinking about things, our traditional ways of um, approaching design problems. And that means looking at, you know, how do we as designers think about um, the way all this works and what really is the connection between the mind and the body and the tools that we have, the information we have and all the world around us. And so a lot of what's is happens in those early chapters around associations is saying we sort of have a particular story that we've told about that um but when we look at it through this other lens we're going to have a different way some other things to come out and we continue with that vein throughout the entire book we're trying to rethink this idea um, a long time ago uh one of the philosophers the cognitive philosophers we quote uh, cite in the book is a guy named andy clark and he's famous for a lot of his work on embodiment. And one of his, his first book on the subject was called Being There, Putting Mind, Body, and World Back Together Again. And he's interested in it from a scientific perspective, right? And what his argument really has at root was through the cognitive revolution, what we had done is we had taken all of these pieces like engineers Right? And we had broken things down into their smallest pieces and separated all of them. We had separated mind from body. We had separated body from world. And embodiment tries to put that back together again. And one way to read this book is to say, all right, given that, if we accept, maybe not that, uh, that we accept that embodiment has a lot of merit, that there is a lot of things that we have missed. When we start doing that and we look at the information in our world, we look at the technologies we have, when we look at this from a design perspective, we can begin putting things back together again in new ways with this insight. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, all right. Now I'm going to move us. Guthrie's laughing at me here. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you guys have a book in front of you? Every, would everyone please turn to page 166? Guthrie, turn to page 166, please. Oh, yeah. I just want to point out, because I, I love this I love this chart. Um, again, I'm going to mention the fact that I think you guys do a wonderful job of kind of moving back and forth and integrating uh some of the these interesting theory ideas some of these interesting philosophies really right and and uh and looking at the science of it and then just darn practical <laughs> you know things um and there's this great chart on uh, uh page 166 167 um about gestalt principles that i think is a is really nice chart and a, and a really good summary and just um you know a uh, compendium of of how to take some of the gestalt principles and you know what that practically means tell me how you feel about the whole you know because the gestalt the whole gestalt thing which i guess maybe one of you can can just kind of describe briefly in case people don't know what that means how do you, you know, that's an old, that's an old concept, right? That's been around mm -hmm. for quite some time. So how do you think that holds up? I, I think it holds up well. Um, I will, before I, I'll say I struggled with where to place this in, in that run, in that chapter, because um, the, the two chapters that were, that it's sandwiched in are, um, you know, one talking about visual encodings and how the eye 
picks up things like contrast and color or or something moving faster than other things or something rotated and other things aren't. So we're talking about all of these visual encodings. And the next chapter uh, talks about how we use space to hold meetings. So the idea of arranging things on you know our desk or in our office or you know in, in our kitchen or in our closet, whatever it may be, right? And so the Gestalt one was a bit odd because we're like, well, where does this fit? It's like an odd dugout. <laughs> Is it a visual encoding? Is it a use of space? And uh, we ended up including it in the visual encoding section because we felt like it's more, it fit better there. It's more like you glance at things and you see these patterns, you form these relationships implicitly. And so it was more about the perceptions, the visual perceptions we, or visual cognitive <laughs> perceptions we make uh, when we glance at something. So it could be, you know, a mess of trash, you know, like that needs to be taken out. But if like people have parted the ways and they have one pile of trash and the other, suddenly we think that, you know, because of this proximity that maybe one is meant to go to the recycling and the other is meant to go to the actual garbage or what, or, you know, don't throw this away, but throw this away. I don't know. Right. And that's just, we just naturally do that. So I think um, even though the ideas are, uh, you know, have been around for, since what, like the 1930s or so, I believe, yeah. um, I think they hold up. I mean, you, I see them in everyday uh, occurrences. And I think if anything, the, um, the, the bigger challenge was just pointing out uh, you know, not just where they show up, but where they don't show up. Again, we throughout the book, we want to have uh, uh, lots of application, lots of examples. And so um, I think one of the examples we include there was, um, you know, if you go into a hotel, uh, they, you know, the the toiletries that are provided in these hotels, they're never just, you know, left on the, on the you know, the bathroom counter. They're always sitting on a glass rectangle or a wooden box or something. And that's the form of enclosure that helps us understand this is a set that's perceived as less. And um, so you see these things show up. And so I think to flip that script and say, okay, well, when when does that not show up and what kind of problems does it cause? And I think I, I listed one of my, my perpetual frustrations, which is I'll be on a site, you know, that has like, a, you know, the top 10 movies from 2019 that you should see, right? And I'll be halfway down the page and I'll see, I'm looking at, you know, the image and then the title of the movie and the short blurb and image. And, and I'm like, wait a second, does that image go with the title below or does is this image following the title above? And, you know, it's such a, because of CMSs and systems we use, um, everything's kind of treated equal and you honestly can't make sense of that other than, you know, if it's a period film and you, know, you can make some associations and all they had to do there was add a little bit of space or padding between the different sets of things. So you could see, Oh yeah, this photo goes with the, the headline above it, right? Not the one below because there's extra space. And so that's a case where like, we're not attending to these Gestalt principles um, and uh, drives me nuts. So I think flipping the script and saying, where do we not do this and why? And it's such a simple solution would be uh, so helpful. Yeah, I th I find it interesting, you know, some of these older things like like the Gestalt, like, which you said goes back quite quite many years, and is therefore, you know, we have all these, we kind of have this split where some of the some of the things that we know about, you know, humans and information and perception comes from, let's say, more recent uh, science and uh, you know, data collected and fMRI and whatever, right? And, and mm -hmm. the brain research. And then some of it comes though from many years ago when those techniques were not used. So that meant that someone did a lot of thinking and testing and, uh, you know, theorizing and real world testing 
of the ideas, but didn't necessarily, you know, couldn't show a neurological or perceptual system. And um, I, some of that, you know, quote, older stuff without that, the new neuro or brain science behind it does hold up really well. And, and interestingly, may not map directly to the newer, uh, uh, put into small boxes research, which I think is kind of part of your point in, in writing the book, which is if you just take everything apart and look at these small pieces and look at it as, you know, this is what's happening in this part of the brain, and this is what's happening in this part of the eye, you're missing that integration of different parts of your mind and your body and and the information. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I think that's the. Um, I mean, that's the that's the challenge, and we particularly address that. Uh, we do address that more directly when we get to the sections on coordination. But it really is this. Um, well, I'm just going to step back, and then uh, I'd love to, Carl. I'd love you to weigh in on the coordination stuff because uh-huh. I know we talked a lot about that. But you know, this started with with me being a book that was going to be about how I use uh, you know visuals to communicate ideas, and like like I am every day, literally every day, like sketching a model or drawing my ideas out, and it's my way of making sense of things. Uh, in fact, just before this podcast, I I shared online a, a timeline I'm creating to understand you know who influenced who in this history of, of, you know, this particular area I'm researching, right? So I'm always creating these models. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to, you know, tread what others have tried to recreate another book that's competing with great books out there on visual thinking. And I really wanted to dig deeper and say, well, why, why do these models work in the first place? Like, what is it about human creatures that uh, makes, you know, drawing a, a Venn diagram or a matrix um, uh, clarify things, right? And Around the same time, I started digging into stories and narratives and being curious about how and why narratives work and to, to shape ideas or influence our thinking. And um, it was at that point that I met Carl and you know he introduced me to the world of interactions. It's, just, it's not just seeing, but interacting and uh, went on from there. But I think that all to say, like in the end, we ended up with a very, I think our publisher called it a very epic book. And uh, both the publisher and the editor went into our first draft ready to cut they had the scissors out and they they've i think blue uh and marta talk about this on the podcast but they went in ready to cut because they knew like the book is way too long and they came out saying no i mean there's a little polish to do stuff but this book is is you know needs to be as broad as it is because of all the ideas that it's bringing under one roof and all the things it's coordinating and they talk about any slice of those or cut it out would be incomplete at that point so that's a little uh, background on just the, the book itself and the <laughs> how comprehensive it is and that's why it took you know many many years to write too it wasn't a two or three year book uh, it took a lot longer than that huh yeah so it's so can, can i uh start please? to play uh devil's advocate now please yes sure uh so she was good cop <laughs> no, oh come on! Be, no, I'm not gonna be bad cop, but I I do get to be questioning cop. So, questioning cop. Uh, I sort of am of a, am of the opinion that there are more tools like this book, um, and more understanding of what it takes to uh, display information in a smart and cohesive way, and to help people understand. And I would argue that uh, most of the things people experience 
uh, are worse than they've ever been before as far as being confusing and non-intuitive. Mm. And a big part of that is the movement, I think, into the digital space away from the physical space, where if you had a can of beans, it was a can of beans, and you could hold it, and it's a can, and here's the lid. Um, so is there, do, you ha do you have any thoughts about why, or if you disagree, uh, it kind of feels like things are worse than ever before? I, I would, there's, I, a, there's a lot going on in that question. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's not a question I think that we can answer. Mm -hmm. But I can say, I, I'd like to come back to one of the sort of the founding premises of the book. We, we talked about embodiment as one of the uh, core opening se sections of the book. But the other one, the other motivating force behind the book is that we have so much more information now. We This is a uh, something that you can look through the whole arc of human civilization as one of the defining features about the story of civilization to create more information. And what we have done in society again and again has, we have made it easier to create, to publish, to share, to distribute, to organize, to search, right? To do all of these different kinds of things with information. And over the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years with the computer revolution and the internet, all of those things have gotten easier or and cheaper, right? It's no longer, like this kind of interview before would have required at least um, someone probably traveling. We would all travel to say like a, a, a radio station. Maybe we would have multiple radio stations in different places. Now we can sit there and we can do it on our computers in our homes, right? So we've lowered the cost around this again and again and again. And the result is we now live in a world that is just jam-packed with information. And we have, and that creates, I think, a lot of new challenges. We are expecting information to do so much more for us. And one of the problems we have is because we have all of this information and we have new tools, we have new expectations. You know, if you think about artificial intelligence, for example, as, as an analogy here, for many years, people were like, oh, well, AI is just going to be around the corner. Like, we're going to be at this point in like five years or 10 years and oh, it never really happened. And it felt like it never really happened and it never really happened. And what kept happening, though, is that we have AI around us all the time if we were using the definition of AI from say 30 years ago, but we kept moving the goalposts. And that's the same kind of thing that has happened to us now in terms of the amount of information that we have and what we're trying to do with it. And I think that's where the embodiment piece also comes back into play. We were, we were looking at this situation where we had so much and we were saying, well, the traditional theories, the traditional idea of the computational theory of mind, that has taken us a long way. And it has done a lot in terms of helping us design interactive tools and technologies. But there are things in there, there are a lot of assumptions, and there is um, things that we have ignored or downplayed, right? Like I said earlier on, like our feet. The cognitive models didn't account for our feet, didn't account for how we would physically navigate through the world, which is kind of important for, say, smartphones, right? Or wearables. So... There is a need, I feel, to rethink some of our basic principles, our concepts, and how we look at these problems. And so in one sense, I'm going to agree with you that, yeah, there is a way in which things are much worse. But they're also much worse because we're trying to do so much more. Hmm. So, so I'm going to uh, continue with Carl's saying, and I'll go back to your original premise, like things seem worse off. And so I'll say yes, and So let's start with the yes. Um, 
Uh, one of the things that uh, it didn't make it to the book, but it, it was, I think we included it in a workshop ages ago. One of the things we looked at was the evolution or the changes in the travel agency for booking travel over many decades. And what's interesting about that is when you dig into it and you go back to these these printed booklets in say the 1920s or 1930s that were based on like train booklets, the information display there, the information design is in many ways better than most or a lot of what we have today in these printed booklets. And it's because you had people thinking about the arrangement of information for understanding. But these books were incredibly limited. You had to mail them out once a month. You, they couldn't scale to hold much information. They were, you know, there were a lot of drawbacks. And so you see somewhere along the way, you see the invention of these, um, you know, terminals and green screens and these systems where um, now we the computation abilities are greatly increased, but the display is, is incredibly limited. So coming out of the 70s and 80s, you have uh, these green screens that can only display six results at a time. Then you have to tap through and enter all these command line interfaces. So the interaction has become much more difficult at this point in history. The display of information is terrible. It's just these, you know, <laughs> these arcane symbols on the green screen, right? Um, but then you fast forward and you get to the internet and the visual display of this information gets much better for people who aren't trained. Uh, you get a GUI to interact with, which is which is an improvement over the the arcane, you know, command line interfaces. Unless unless you're one of these power users who knows that knows those things, and you can run circles around people who have the mouse with your command line interfaces on many types of bookings. And so now you see the shift in interaction, the visual displays are better, probably not as good as they were in the, you know, the 1930s in these printed booklets. You roll it forward again and you get things like, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, well, you get Kayak for more of the computational abilities and filtering through things. So that's a, you know, there's some very explicit um, uh, interactive techniques they're used there based on some of the interaction patterns we might talk about. And then you get something like Hipmunk, which I think is a fantastic visual display of flights, like flight booking. And you get to see like things adjusted for time zones and layovers. You can see it on the grid. And finally, with something like Hipmunk, which is now, I don't know what, seven, eight years old, you finally see something that comes close to what we had in the 1930s, right? With these printed booklets and printed pamphlets. So just assessing the history of a particular space and how it's evolved in terms of understanding was a fascinating uh, project to see where um, where have we taken two steps forward and one step back? And I think, you know, with the democratization of things like desktop publishing, all these tools, now there's more information out there, but at the same time, how these tools are built and what they afford or what they constrain is sometimes that step backwards. And so, um, so that's my yes. I would agree. Like there's a lot of, uh, a lot more information out there. A lot of it is confusing, but I think the fact that there's a lot more is one of those steps forward that we all have the tools and the voice and the platform to put more information into the world, um, which I think makes a book like ours all the more timely. Okay. So how do you work with that information so that you don't just push it out there, but people actually understand it. Um, it is understandable, whether that's through seeing it or interacting with it or whatever it may be. So that's the yes part. And then the end, I would actually say there are some amazing things. Maybe they're not widely distributed yet, but some amazing things that um, we can't overlook. So I think it's, is it RSA that does their animations of different TED Talks and other talks? Like that is a, an amazing way to consume a lot of information in like nine, 10 minutes, right? With these people illustrating the talks as they go along. Um, what we mentioned, Brett Victor and Nikki Case and some of the things they're doing at the end of the book. And we talk about, you know, Brett Victor talks about um, 
why do we have spreadsheets different from word processing, different from you know, data visualization? Why not a tool that integrates all three of those things where you can draw with data right, and model it? And he built a prototype of this tool a few years ago. We don't have it yet because of human behavior and change. But you look at that, and I think anyone who would spend time listening to his presentation or reading about that tool he built would be like, why don't we have this? Why, why, why isn't it here yet? This would be a so much better way to, to, uh, put, to work with information, right? This would be uh, far preferable. You look at what Nikki Case is doing with explorable explanations. And, uh, you know, Nikki takes these really complex ideas like the evolution of trust. And, you know, you can read the book or you can play with this 30 minute simulation where you experience the ideas and you experience you know, like, am I going to trust this person or not? And statistically, what are the repercussions? We didn't have that capability 10, 20 years ago, right? This or maybe 20, 30 years ago. So that is a new way to interact with really complex ideas um, that we didn't have years ago. It's just not yet. I would put the qualifier in the word yet, not yet widely distributed. Hmm. That's cool. I, I think I think a lot of what you said does make sense and does resonate with me. I think there's certainly an issue of uh, what data and who has it that leads to frustrations that didn't necessarily happen in the past. So you mentioned airline travel, and that's actually a really good example because everyone can have access to essentially for the most part a lot of the same information because what flights go when and what the plane number is is pretty readily available um, and so you, the, as as things get more complicated in the world you're starting to run into problems where there needs to be a solution for a problem that didn't used to be so way back in the day when there were three television stations you could just have the TV guide and it was very easy to know what was coming, and that was a simple that that was a solution that was needed, but to a mediumly complicated problem because there were three channels. Um, and now there's infinitely number of channels, and each streaming platform, and each streaming platform they won't say you you can't just like go to a public interface where it has okay each show and where it's streaming and how long it's streaming for. And so there's so now there's you know there's websites like the decider I think it's just decider.com that you know that it's a spider where they're crawling everything to try and keep updated libraries of the 18 different streaming platforms so that you can find which one it is and so uh, it at the the for the end user it's a terribly complicated you know I just want to watch this movie I have Amazon and Netflix and Apple TV and it, I have all these different streaming services and I I just I can't you know, I actually don't have an interface. I don't have a way to, like, get this, uh, in, I, to, to process all this information because uh, the problem has become so much more complex than it used to be. And I, I think, I guess when I say it, it feels like things are bad, I think maybe that's what people are feeling. Like, any one interface um, might be good, but, like, in aggregate, it becomes this problem. Hmm. Yeah, one of the big questions I think of the modern era really is how do how does one think well and live well in a world that is just jam packed with information at every turn and in every nook and cranny? I think you're hitting on something else too that uh, we Carl and I struggled with as we were writing the book, which was are we talking about? organizing information for performance? Or are we talking about organizing information 
for sense making or understanding. And so I'm thinking about your example of uh, I just need to find you know where that movie I want to watch is streaming. So that's uh, yeah, that's more in the performance category. And you can push a button, and you don't have to understand what happened to get that movie back. You probably don't care, don't want to. Uh, but if we shift it a bit, it's not a great example. But if we shift it a bit and say, you know, what movie should I watch? You know, I kind of like these movies and what else could we recommend? That starts to shift and become more of a problem of understanding or maybe something more pointed. Um, I like films from these, you know, directors. Who else? What else have they done? Those types of things. Now it's working with information in a way where you want to understand more about, you know, that particular director's repertoire and their history and where they've come from. So there's there's that difference, that fine line between are we working with information for performance issues or working with information for understanding issues yeah yeah i can see that uh, and also do or you know do we have a specific question or is it that we just kind of want to see everything out there you know we just want to we want to understand the universe of possibilities absolutely you know to tie this back to i think something a lot of people can relate to we Overall, within the UX field, we design for tasks and flows. And we say, what is the task people are trying to accomplish? And we don't approach these tasks with, well, what is the thing that people who don't know are trying to understand? And it's um, it's hard because you know we've really cultivated this culture of if we optimize the heck out of this, you know, buying path, we'll get the conversion we want. We the the you know the business, right? But if you if you look at the thing that's being purchased, maybe it's something like a health insurance plan or uh, making maybe it's, you know, purchase is a, is a loose word in this case. Maybe it's uh, making a decision about your own health care and what you're going to do with like a treatment or a prognosis. Um, we don't just want to get funneled to a solution. We want to understand mm. why am I making the solution? Like, why did I choose this option over the other three options? Right. So you want to we want to arrive at a conclusion from a place of understanding, not a place of, well, you know, that's what the technology told me, the AI or the human told me I needed to do. <laughs> I don't know why. And so that I think that starts to speak to values and kind of an ethos behind this, which is, can we guide people to the same decisions or the the similar decision they have to make, but you know, along the way, help facilitate understanding? Yeah, and I think that's such a, you know, that that question that you're raising is, is, can be problematic if you, if you, are assuming one way, like you're assuming people just want to know the solution, and we're just and so our job is to find out the the best way to show them the answer, right? Or you know, so you're assuming that, but actually, what people want is they want to understand the whole space, and you know, so understanding the context of what it is that people really want to understand. And then, of course, you can layer that on where people will, if you ask them, they'll say, oh, I want to understand everything. But actually, they don't. They just want the answer. <laughs> and so you're designing for having them understand everything because they said what they said they wanted. And yet when you do that, they, you know, they're overwhelmed and say, why didn't you just tell me what to do? Oh yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> well. I mean that. Well, I mean that. I feel like that's that's my story of my career, right? It's just. It's also to... one of the core tensions in design. It strikes me as well, though, right? As yeah. the designer, you know, we are responsible for you know take our you know one of the things, the main thing we're really interested in the book here, 
we have lots of information and we want to make this information understandable. And so, but what we're trying to point out in the book a lot is that there is a, a balance that needs to be struck there between providing information in an understandable form, but also recognizing when and how and why the people on the other hand will need to make that understanding for themselves. You cannot often cases, especially as we get with more comp more information and more complex kinds of problems, people need to engage with this. That is where the understanding is really going to happen. And our job is not about providing the information and the understanding. Right. It's about providing the information in a form that makes understanding possible. Mm, that's such an interesting, interesting way to put it. Yeah. I'll, I'll bring this down to earth with a very practical uh, example. Just a few months ago, I was meeting with uh, a doctor. Uh, my mom is, you know, going through cancer treatments. And, you know, as we were exploring the options and the path before, it, it was, you know, very confusing. <laughs> we were there for an hour, hour and a half. And, um, I didn't have my notebook and there wasn't a whiteboard in the room and just trying to follow the options and the paths and the pros and cons. It was really hard at that moment. I, I thought about everything Carl and I've written about and I'm like, if they would just have a whiteboard in the room, we could have kept a record of what was said, or we could have, I could, there was a flow chart or decision tree with pros and cons in each path that was being described, but retaining that information and processing it, especially under the context and the tense situation of mm -hmm. deciding what you want to do, um, that was really hard. But it was one of those cases where if, you know, you don't have to have a canvas or a structure or anything, just have a whiteboard in the room so thinking could be externalized so we could reflect on it and point back to it. Mm -hmm. That would have made uh, a huge difference in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are other micro things. Like we talk a lot about framing and how we frame stuff. And, um, you know, I saw it in action where, they would say, you know, there's a 5% chance this bad thing will happen. Right. And later on, the doctor would flip it. Well, there's a 95% chance, chance like, that, that right. everything's fine, right? right? And and so I saw, you know, I thought about our chapter on priming and associations and all that. And I'm like, aha, I see it in action, right, in here, in this room. And I see the effects of framing it in those different ways and the fear it inspires or the confidence that inspires. And I don't know. I mean, these to me are... Um, these, along with other things we haven't written about, are, are skills that I would love to see everyone develop, like their visual literacy, thinking about the 15 interaction patterns, uh, thinking about, you know, uh, just how we use space around us to hold and convey meaning. Like, I would love for everyone that, I'd love for this to be taught, like, <laughs> in, in grade school, right? And these would be skills along with things like critical thinking and other literacies that everyone just has. Uh, I think it would make a difference in all of our interactions. So talk about so talking about you know teaching, you guys made reference a while ago to a workshop. So do you teach this these concepts? We we have in the past. We've done a joint workshop. Um, I think what I'm I'm I've kind of gone a different direction with this, which is um, since writing the book. Uh, you know, and the book, I think, is very foundational for understanding how to work with information as a resource. Um, I realize there's a gap between uh, these these things that will, uh, hopefully, if Carl and I have done our job, will still be true in 10, 50, 100 years, right? Based on everything we know, this is how human creatures have made sense of information for thousands of years and how they will into the foreseeable future. You really, but, that, that's really a, you know, talk about <laughs> planning for a book to 
to be uh, relevant for many years. You plan we to hope. be yeah. selling so one of the copies reason- a thousand years from now. <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons the book has so many different kinds of examples, not and so many of the examples are not digital, is because we were really interested in the idea of trying to find principles that would not that would run across different kinds of technologies, mm-hmm. right? Paper is a technology, a whiteboard is a technology. Your desk can be used as a technology for this. But we also have all our digital tools and we know that these are uh, evolving. We know that they're getting more interactive. We know that they're getting more connected. We know we're getting more of them, right? The number of digital things that you have in your life, it used to be like a desktop and now I don't even know how many digital things I have. Plus I'm mixing that in with all of the physical space around us. So this is only gonna become in one sense, more complicated, but in another sense, more of an opportunity. And so we tried for lots of different kinds of examples with an eye towards this notion that it would still be relevant even as technology changes. And in this way, it kind of connects a bit with a book that we both admire a great deal, which would be The Design of Everyday Things. Mm -hmm. You know, the original version of that book, and even the subsequent edition, doesn't really have, I mean, the first edition has almost nothing about computers, and yet it becomes like one of the main foundational texts for people who are designing interfaces because it tries to look at specific concepts and principles and ideas about how we, how, how the mind works, right? And it's based on an idea that doesn't really account for embodiment a great deal, but the principles are still true. Feedback, visibility, affordances, mapping, these all re- remain as important principles, no matter what kind of technology we're using. And that's a similar vein what we're aiming for in this book. Yeah. Yeah. And to go back to your question about the, the workshops, what I've tried to do now is with this book as the foundation, the basis for why and how these things work is to now, okay, let's talk about the tools that help facilitate understanding and uh, particularly the tools that help facilitate understanding around complex topics. And so we mention a variety of these throughout the book and, and we give a ton of examples. But what I'm doing now with the Mighty Minds Club is, is each month I'm taking a particular tool. So something very tactical, very practical, um, taking a particular tool and going deep with it and learning everything I can about that tool, sharing it, learning with the community, using it together. and. Um, it, it's a great way to say, okay, if this was the theory and the foundation and the examples, let's actually um, let's actually put this into practice every month with a different tool. And the tools range from uh, this first month, I've gone deep with a tool from uh, from the futurist world uh, about exploring alternative futures, and I had a lot of fun researching that one, digging into it. But you know, the the we'll be digging into tools that are very um, uh, introspective, like think tools to develop your own self awareness, and that's fueled by the idea that, you know, if we can't um, understand our own inner complexity, how can we understand the outward, you know, systems complexity? That's go- everything that's going on in the world. And so we're going to have a you know, month where we talk about a particular self-awareness tool, or how to have a difficult conversation, or you know, these the narratives that that guide our decision making. So that's you know that would be another month, and then. Um, you know, after that, we might talk about a tool like polarity mapping, which, again, the point of polarity mapping is uh, as a tool is not to make a decision, but to be comfortable with two things that are at odds and should be. You know, in the example that's used with polarity mapping a lot is breathing. You know, should we prior- prioritize inhaling or exhaling? The answer is, well, yes. <laughs> like Both are important. You need both at all times. And yet when it comes to something like uh, I- I'll-, I'll do a broad present one right now, collective needs versus individual freedoms. That's a tension we see right now. And I think as a country, we've over-indexed on one and to the detriment of the other. And that's not good. It's a polarity that we should have intention at all times. 
Um, anyway, so lots of fascinating stuff, but the, I think yeah. the idea being let's talk about specific tools, whether they're canvases or card decks or um, you know, computer interfaces, explorable explanations, whatever they are that put all these ideas that we've written about into action and show how you can bring groups of people together into dialogue around these really, really complex topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my case, when it comes to the education, I have uh, I taught this um, much of this material um, as a graduate course in a user experience, user experience design program at Kent State, where I was a faculty member for six or seven years. And uh, so I had a course called Human Information Interaction. I had one on information visualization, which um, overlapped with it in certain ways, as well as a lot of your standard uh, user experience design classes. Um, and then I've got a number of different workshops that I've done and taught around around this. I've become more interested, where Stevens moved into, is moving into his Mighty Minds Club, uh, I've become interested in the idea of rooms and physical space and trying to get a better handle on how we go about designing rooms to uh, support um, enhance our cognitive powers, basically. Interesting stuff. Hey, tell uh, tell us um, as we start to wrap up here, how if people want to get hold of you, each of you, uh, what would be the best way to reach you? I think for me, it's uh, I'm active on Twitter, so it's it's my name, Stephen Anderson. So no middle initial P, just Stephen Anderson on Twitter. Um, or you can email me at stephen at poetpainter.com. Uh, that's Stephen with a PH in both of those cases. Yeah, and in my case, you can find me on Twitter as well, uh, at Carl Fast. That's K-A-R-L-F-A-S-T. Um, and I will respond to questions from there. We have very direct Twitter names, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So uh, just to... Just to remind everybody, the book is called Figure It Out, which, okay, it's a good name. I'll stop complaining about the name. It's a really great book. Um, I, I, think, I think everyone who does information and UX design and any kind of design really needs to read this book. Uh, and, guys, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It, this has been... Um, a really uh, interesting uh, for me it was an interesting conversation I hope our listeners like it Guthrie uh, anything we need to say to our listening audience here Uh, I hope everyone is being safe and doing well okay that sounds good all right thanks Carl thanks Stephen thank you you for having us it's a pleasure